This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening. You are with Lee Tree Lin and Sharat Kutin. Tonight, a deep dive into the life and career of the Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim. For this, we're going to be joined by Emeritus Professor Kubu Teik, who's recently written a book on the man. So, let us know, do you have any questions for our guest, but also a broader one. What do you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader? That number to call, double seven double three two nine hundred. Tweet us at BFM Radio and send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U-Mobile number, 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. So as promised, um, the basis of our show today is in the newly published book, Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power, which of course brings readers on the political journey of Malaysia's 10th Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim. And it was authored by our guest today, Emeritus Professor Kubutek of the National Graduate Institute for Pol- Policy Studies Tokyo, and it looks at 50 years of Anwar's life uh, through his various political incarnations, and that in some ways is going to be the focus of our show today. So let us know, do you have any questions um, for our guest, Kubutek? Also, what do you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader now that we have had just a little over a year um, of him as Prime Minister? That number to call, double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Speaking with us now, of course, Ku Butek, author of Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power. Butek, thanks for taking the time and speaking with us today. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to start off actually by talking about the words you used in the title of the book, Tenacious, uh, but also Hopeful. Why did you choose this juxtaposition of terms to describe Anwar Ibrahim as a politician and a leader? I was trying to find a proper title for the book. And I can tell you that it is not such an easy thing to do. Finally, after thinking about the issue for a while, and uh, being pressured by the publisher to give a title, I uh, came across this uh, tenacious in dissent, which seemed to me to describe you know, Anwar's attitude and his character um, all through the 25 years, let's say, since Reformasi began. And uh, hopeful in power, because I think that coming to power in the way that he did, he needed to be hopeful more than anything else, because he had uh, a lot of obstacles to overcome and uh, he had to maneuver uh, his way around you know, many obstacles and to outmaneuver his uh, opponents and uh, before he actually arrived at the stage when he could become prime minister. But since then, in being prime minister, he's also had to try to be... Um, you know, fairly hopeful in what he wants to do, in continuing to remain in power. And uh, and so the tenacity that he showed 
while he was in dissent for about 25 years after Reformasi, I think has carried on. But this time, you know, it is much more hope in power rather than tenacity and dissent. Butik, I was, unlike Lynn, I was taken by dissent and power rather than tenacious and hopeful. But uh, so my question, I think wonder if people picking up this book might uh, see this as a guide to how Anwar Ibrahim will be as prime minister. Is Anwar's 16 years in government a better indication of how he will govern than either his early years as an activist or his decades after his sacking? I don't think that it is necessary uh, for one to go back to the 16 years that he spent as a minister in the, the AMDO government since 1982 to try and get you know, very clear ideas about how he would govern today. I mean, we have to think that today he is prime minister for all the obstacles and all the difficulties that he has had to go through. And uh, being prime minister is considerably more difficult, more, you know, much unlike, you know, being a junior minister and then somewhere a moderate level minister and then a senior, you know, deputy minister, a prime minister and so on. So I don't think that one can necessarily go back to those 16 years and try to grab out many lessons. Let me say that I think as Prime Minister, he's uh, trying to do his job differently from that time. Of course, there are many things that would be the same. I mean, he would have better ideas than most people who never was a, a minister before, let alone a deputy prime minister. You know, he, he would know much better some of the things that he had to deal with let's say, in cabinet meetings, in the making arrangements with his ministerial colleagues to get the projects implemented, to get policies implemented, to get things studied and uh, you know, proposed to the government as a whole. But if we then extend that conversation to uh, not his previous ministerial tenure, but instead the, his time as opposition leader with the rallying cry of uh, reformacy or reform, um, how have those years then informed or how, what kind of lens do they offer um, for us to look at him as a prime minister? That's a useful question to, uh, to raise because while he was a uh, uh, dissident in a politician in the last, uh, let's say, 25 years, although, you know, quite a number of those years were spent in prison, you know, he was uh, focused on fighting two things more than most other things. He was really focused on, you know, combating corruption, especially in the high places, among high-level politicians and among, you know, very rich uh, corporate characters. That was one. And the other thing was he said he was going to fight and confront authoritarianism in favor of what he later called Muslim democracy. And I believe that in fighting those two issues over those years, he has gained quite a lot of experience, which we are now seeing after one year of his uh, being in power. And, um, I mean, we can argue about how pure 
you know, his moves have been, you know, in terms of being anti-corruption or how pure his moves have been in being against authoritarianism and for democracy. But nonetheless, we can see many kinds of uh, indications that, you know, this um, his focus on these two issues in particular has remained with him. We're speaking today with Kubute, who is the author of um, a new book on Anwar Ibrahim titled Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power. Uh, we are talking about Anwar's sort of ideas, um, his leadership, his career. If you have any questions, let us know. But also, what do you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Brainy, fancy material. BFM eighty nine point nine. It is 6.18 and you're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We're talking today about uh, the Prime Minister, his career, his leadership, along with um, the author of a recent book about those very things, Kubutek, who is our guest today. Um, so just to continue this train of thought, right? Anwar, perhaps uh, more than any Malaysian politician, speaks about his intellectual influences. He wears them on his sleeve. They, they come up often. Um, in your book, you suggest that he has evolved considerably in his thinking about politics and society over the years. Is he a political chameleon or, or is a more helpful way to think about it that he's intellectually open? Well, I believe he has been intellectually open over you know, many years. And this issue would take us back all the way to when he was in the university. And after he was in the university, he was in um, Angkatan Belia, Islam Malaysia, and Yayasan Anda, all the way until now. Um, I believe it is unnecessary here for us to try and work out the different stages in which he might have changed. But he certainly has changed considerably, I think, as a politician. And even before becoming a politician, um, I, I think that he has been relatively open. And uh, if you take uh, various issues like uh, his Islam, for example, I mean, a lot of people have constantly referred to Anwar as an Islamist. In the past, they might have said a firebrand Islamist. They might have said a real extreme Islamist. And when he was down and out, there were people in America who were paid to write nonsense about him being uh, an Islamic radical, you know, allied to all kinds of Islamic uh, forces uh, in the extreme over in the uh, Middle East. But I believe he has uh, tried to be quite different. And uh, let us take, for example, his politics today. And if you look at the, the multiracial politics that he has been hanging on to since the first day he became prime minister, I believe that is of some importance in showing how he has changed over many years. I mean, at the time when he was still deputy prime minister, he might not have been you know, anything like a, a politician who spoke on you know, racial themes all the time. But he was never really a big promoter of multiracial politics. Today, you may say that he still hasn't really come out to say, okay, this is my 
multiracialism, and these are the kinds of things that I wish to do. But nonetheless, if you look at his coalition, if you look at the kinds of uh, things that he has uh, done, the anti-corruption, for example, the fight against uh, authoritarianism, and other things, I believe he has been reasonably um, multiracial. And in that respect, he has changed from about 1998, after he fell from power, all the way until today. So I believe that that is one, one thing that uh, he has changed. Now, some people have usually say, look, uh, a leopard cannot change its spots. You, know? you can go back to the, uh, I believe, the Old Testament, but I'm no expert on the Bible at all to be able to tell you this thing. People say a leopard cannot change its spots, and they suggest that, you know, Anwar is that kind of a leopard. But, you know, a Japanese uh, colleague of mine, a retired professor, once said to me, in the Chinese classics, he said, there is this thing about how a wise man usually changes his position when he finds that conditions are such that he has to change for the better. So if you take it, uh, you know, in that sense, earlier you were asking me about whether Anwar was a chameleon. I believe that something like this has been happening. I don't mean, therefore, that, you know, he's just uh, all the time being opportunistic. I don't mean that he has never been opportunistic. I don't think any politician can avoid being opportunistic at different points in their career. And so I believe that Anwar has, uh, you know, um, been changing to some extent. Now, Butika, your book, I think, is also meant to be, in some, to some extent, a kind of intellectual biography, isn't it? Um, but this idea of being intellectual is often seen in opposition to the idea of being a man of the people, of being popular, that, you know, re reaching out to the person on the street. Do you think, or have you observed this to be true in how people think about Anwar? It is, uh, to some extent, true of Anwar. As in fact, it would be true of, say, Mahathir Muhammad, whom, you know, uh, Anwar was fighting for a very long time. I mean, both of them have intellectual tendencies. Both of them have claims to be intellectuals. And I think by saying intellectual here, I don't mean they have to be professorial, for example. But they can be quite, it can be enough that they are able to... Uh, conceptualize a lot of issues, be able to put out ideas about how they regard the world and not just the politics of the country. And uh, from that point of view, you know, be able to implement policies that seem to suggest what their intellectual uh, tendencies are. I feel that in that respect, they are not necessarily different from the men of the people. Uh, the men of the people, I mean, if we can put it those ways, I mean, if you mean by that people who may be populist, who do not really think, you know, in intellectual ways, etc., those are people whom, you know, I think Anwar would feel relatively comfortable in dealing with. Uh, he may or may not uh, be uh, at one with them, especially when he gives speeches uh, to certain crowds, you know, whether in Tokyo or in Europe or in Malaysia, 
part of the time, and he brings out you know things that are rather more esoteric and rather more um, high flown, if you will, in his language. For example, he has a tendency to go back to Shakespeare. And, uh, you know, there are lots of politicians in Malaysia for whom Shakespeare, you know, doesn't mean very much. And I don't think, though, if you look at the way that Anwar goes around talking to uh, uh, people in the country, that he is any less of a man of the people at the same time. You made reference to this earlier already, um, but if we look at the various labels, I suppose, that have uh, at various points been attached to Anwar, um, firebrand Islamist, arch-liberal, friend of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, alternatively, sometimes simultaneously, lapdog of the West, you hear these sorts of phrases thrown around. Um, What do you make of these sorts of extreme descriptions that seem to swirl around him? I don't know. I don't think that all of those are necessarily extreme. Let us take one that a lot of people would regard to be extreme. A friend of the Muslim brothers. Actually, the Muslim brothers in Egypt in particular, you know, were not the kinds of radical Islamists who were out and out, um, let's say, bent on terrorist activities against the government. They were not like that at all. If you look at the history of the Muslim brothers, then, and uh, if you look at the way they took power in the Egypt after the, uh, the so-called Arab Spring, they were not like that at all. They were relatively moderate. And in fact, that was one reason they got wiped out by the Al-Sisi uh, military you know, so easily. And uh, of course, some parts of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood may have over many, many years been so frustrated that they engaged in certain activities that were regarded and always put down as being terrorists. But uh, I think being just, you know, friendly to the ideas of, you know, the founder um, and uh, some of the other people, uh, you know, did not make them, did not make Anwar, you know, to, uh, out to be a very, an extreme sort of person. As for the other one, the other extreme, let's say, a lapdog of the West, I mean, that is another problem that you can look and, uh, you know, discuss. But you have to be very careful about the timing, about the kinds of issues that you, you know, think about when you say maybe there are people who claim that Anwar was a lapdog of uh, the United States in particular. After 1987, after the 1987 crisis, he was, you know, relatively neoliberal, if you will, in the way he thought of solutions to the crisis. But he was never out and out a neoliberal. And if he was very friendly to people like Paul Wolfowitz and so on, it was partly after, you know, he had been jailed and so on, he needed the kinds of uh, support that these people could give him. And uh, I think that if one were in his position, one would end up being with one's supporters from the West, from the East, from wherever. And it just happens that some of these guys were, you know, from the United States, which, you know, was the biggest power around. And therefore, it was easy for people to say that he was a lapdog. 
But if you go through a whole series of speeches that he gave, especially after the, during the periods when he was out of jail, he was not necessarily a lapdog of the West. Although, you know, I can think of situations when he sometimes said things that made himself sound like that kind of, uh, you know, supporter of certain parts of the West. Right? But he has been critical of uh, the West in different things. He has been critical of the West in its uh, reaction to, uh, um, to the 9-11 issue, you know, to uh, the Arab Spring and to the end of the Arab Spring, and so on. As for the third one, um, what was it that you said? Was it about uh, uh, I, I being a firebrand? It, I think that it was um, Islamist, which we talked about earlier, and oh, we will yeah, return to these points. <laughs> we'll return yeah. to these points in a little bit. We do have to head to the news, but we will continue our conversation with Kubutik after this. Let us know if you have questions for him and also what you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Break from monotony, BFM 89.9. It is 6.39 and you are listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We are talking today about um, the Prime Minister, Dr. Sri Anwar Ibrahim. I laugh because most news stories are actually in essence about him, but today is really more of a deep dive into his ideology, his ideas, his career. Uh, and we are joined and have been joined by Emeritus Professor Kubutik, who recently wrote a book called uh, Anwar, Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power. Um, Butik, thank you for staying on the line with us. So um, if we look at the, maybe if we get into the ins and outs of the politics, what does the formation of Pakatan Rakyat, bringing together PAS and DAP, uh, you know, initially into an electoral pact, later into a coalition with a common policy platform, what does that tell us about Anwar's political skills and ability to speak to very different stakeholders? Well, I think it, it actually speaks very well for his ability to uh, pull together, you know, different uh, parties, parties that had uh, differing or contrasting, uh, you know, ideological and other um, tendencies. And uh, this has been happening ever since, uh, you know, Reformasi began uh, uh, with the formation of. PKR, Pakatan, um, not Pakatan, Parti Gardelan Rakyat, uh, with PAS at that time, with DAP, and with uh, Parti Rakyat at that time. In fact, you could even go back and say that, you know, there was a period after Anwar's release from his ISA detention, when he led an Anti-Societies Act amendment campaign that he was already able to bring together different groups, different NGOs uh, into a common front for the pursuit of certain goals. And uh, likewise, when they started and they worked on the, the first verse of 2007. So I, in my opinion, you know, all this suggests that uh, he has been able to get together people to work together. Now, in saying that, I don't mean that he doesn't or he has never met problems, some of which he couldn't resolve, some of which they just had to, you know, leave aside. And after all, you know, when you look at how uh, past has broken away 
there has also been you know, failures on his part. But that was a part when that was a part that came up when he went to when he went to prison again in February of 2015. So one can speculate on these things. I do think that uh, there has been some ability on his part to bring people together to work. <laughs> Butik, obviously he's continues to demonstrate his coalition building uh, skills. We have, in fact, a, a listener who's written, Pui Lim, she's written in saying, has PM Anwar painted himself into a corner by allying with Amno to form the Madani government? How can PKR and Kardan members move their own agenda in the current power structure? Well, I think the clue to what you're saying is the current power structure it was a current, it was a power structure that Anwar had to deal with in order to become prime minister. Now, a lot of people will suspect and say that, uh, you know, many kinds of compromises were struck between Anwar and the other coalition partners, and not just Anwar, Amno, but that Amno was key to the compromises and to the construction of this current power structure. There must have been compromises of all kinds. You know, I shall not go into the details, some of which I think we don't even really know about. Some may have to do with uh, Sarawak, Sabah, you know, small groups and, uh, and so on. So I, th I think that, you know, these are the sorts of things that politicians have to deal with. Now for the, the person in the street or Anwar's supporter, let's say, or even somebody who may be critical of Anwar, the question is whether you can live with this power structure, a power structure that has many different kinds of warts on it and uh, many different things that people are not generally happy about. But I believe that uh, a lot of people probably at that time felt that, well, even if you have to have, you know, AMNO, you at least would have a government that did not have the Pakata Perikatan National. And for a lot of people, that was primary. Now, whether the same people who thought that way still think that way, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I'm not sure whether that is the case, but that is something to think about. So in writing this book um, about Anwar, did you discover something about him that you hadn't known or was it rather uh, or potentially that your opinion shifted as a result of careful thinking and close research? I have to say, look, I've, I've actually said I don't want to uh, uh, put up my book as a, you know, um, as a model or whatever, but I've, I've spent a lot of time writing 408 pages of text you know, on the subject. And clearly along the way, there were things that I discovered about him, which I had not known about when I first wanted to write about him, which was several years ago. And over the, the period of time, I have found things, you know, whether they were just uh, small details that added to my knowledge of uh, Anwar's uh, character or his convictions, or his politics, or whether there were new things that were quite different from what he had done before. I mean, these things happen all the time. And, 
So I'm, I'm happy to say that I, I have learned along the way uh, things that, uh, um, that I hadn't known about Anwar before. And, uh, but if we don't go into details, we can leave it at that. Now, I'm going to say the obvious, but uh, charisma obviously <laughs> is important for politicians or any politicians. It's the stuff that binds leaders to their followers. Can you tell us a little bit about, because I know you, you mentioned this in the book, has the character of Anwar's charisma changed over time? I'm not sure what you mean by the character of his charisma and how it might have changed. But to the extent that people think of him once upon a time as a charismatic uh, sort of person, a charismatic leader when he was young for the Abim people, for the Yayasan people, for the people in the anti-societies uh, uh, act campaign. And even when he was first in Amno and so on, all the way to, you know, when he fell. And later on when he became, you know, put up as the figure of reformacy. I mean, all that record of charisma remain and uh, has still remained. I mean, it's a big record. And um, so I don't think one has to say very much about it now, other than that he was able to uh, behave as a charismatic politician. Now, is he still as charismatic as before? That is the question that seems to be implied by you know, the points that you raise. I'm not so sure now because, you know, for one, you have to think that Anwar's today, what is he now, 76 or 70, 77, 76, I think. Mm -hmm. 77? Uh, 77, um, yeah, 77. And uh, at 77, you can't project yourself with the same kind of charismatic uh, impression onto other people as you would have been able to do so, you know, uh, once upon a time, unless the situation becomes very, very changed. Uh, you know, for example, Mahathir in 2018, you might say that Mahathir somehow re re recovered his own charisma. But that was a, a, a very particular point with very particular uh, incidents and uh, other things to help him appear to be charismatic. So for Anwar now, it seems to me enough that he continues to behave as the press, uh, as the prime minister he uh, he has, uh, he is, and uh, without really having to worry too much about how charismatic he may be. For a lot of people who support him, though, I believe that the, they still look to him as a charismatic politician, somebody who's been able to behave in ways that are quite different from the ordinary politicians. We'll be continuing our conversation with Kubutik, who is the author of Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power. Uh, let us know if you have questions for our guests, but also what do you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader? You can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. 
It is 6.50 and you are listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod and we're closing off our conversation now with Kubu Teng, who is, um, among many other things, also the author of Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power, and that uh, the central subject of that book has also been the central subject of today's show. So, um, Butik, amidst a dwindling economy and what you call an unsteady moment in Malaysian politics, do you think Anwar's message of transformation continues to resonate with different segments of the population, whether we're talking about supporters or detractors? Well, he has only been Prime Minister for a year and uh, two months, roughly. And uh, whether we like it or not, that doesn't seem to me to be a very long period in you know, leading a country, especially during that, this unsteady moment, as I said. It's unsteady because there were many attempts to try and get rid of him. There were many attempts to undermine his government. And uh, as a result, uh, for some time, I, I thought he had to balance between trying to run the government in the sense of uh, putting his policies into action and uh, having to deal with all these kinds of problems that came from the uh, opposition. Right? And because it was uh, not necessarily everything in his favour, uh, it was in that sense unsteady, and he had to try and, uh, you know, I think above all, uh, remain in power. Um, most people say the economy is dwindling. Uh, I believe that maybe it is true. I haven't looked into the economy as much, uh, you know, in recent times, uh, I can see that the, the ringgit has uh, declined in value. But how much of that has to do with uh, just forex uh, movements that were unavoidable um, is, is something that I don't really understand very much about. I haven't, at least at this point, I haven't gone into looking at it because I'm trying to look at other things. Uh, not necessarily connected with Anwar. Okay? Um, other than that, uh, the economy seems to be going along. It has a relatively you know, um, small rate of growth, I believe, and it still has uh, investments. Um, and to the extent that these things uh, can continue, I believe that uh, you know, people will have to deal with the situation as they find themselves to be in. Anwar has said that he would try, even in his budget speech before, he had already said that he would try to help the disadvantaged you know, groups in the society, many disadvantaged groups. And uh, he has tried to do that, um, you know, sometimes just providing funds, sometimes providing projects, sometimes uh, trying to speed up things for them. And now, you know, he has to deal with other issues like, uh, um, how should I say, the pension issue and so on. And perhaps, you know, I think people might have to give him a little bit more time to see how things are going to come out. And uh, I'm not a follower of the 100-day, you know, way of assessing uh, uh, a government or any government. I think it is... It has been quite 
useful in some cases, but it has also been quite useless in other cases to say that after 100 days, you can decide whether a government is there or hasn't been there or should be out. Right? And so I, I, I tend to try and look at the events as they come up, some of the anti-corruption issues, for example, that are happening now, and uh, trying to pay some attention to how these might develop. Yeah, so very quickly on that point, because this is brought up, uh, in your book you talk about Anwar often saying to his followers, look to the future, not to the past. But in the question of the investigations into Daim Zainuddin, there is this uh, accusation of kind of revenge politics. In your assessment of the man, how do you think of what's happening now? Um, assessment of which man? Uh, of Anwar. Oh, okay. I mean, it is a possibility that all these uh, moves against uh, Daim Zainuddin were, you know, prompted partly by emotions of uh, revenge, emotions of trying to pay back, you know, uh, Daim for the wrongs that uh, were allegedly committed by him against Anwar over many years. It is possible. I do not know for sure that what is happening uh, with uh, Daim and his family now are, you know, the direct handiwork of Anwar in the very specific uh, ways in which the case is going on. Um, he has said before that he didn't want to go back and uh, charge some of these people, you know, uh, the oligarchs with corruption. But perhaps lately he has felt, uh, you know, um, being challenged by different groups, including people like him, people like uh, Daim. This is just uh, speculation. And uh, maybe he's trying to do something about it. But I do not know exactly how this whole thing will come out. Right now, I believe, you know, Daim has only been charged with not declaring his assets. We haven't gone into questions of corruption yet, as far as I can see from the news. Butik, we have just a couple of minutes left with you. Um, mm. Broadly speaking, we do get a sense, hearing from listeners, from the messages we get, that there are very deep-rooted concerns and anxieties about the direction of our country and its politics. What's your feeling about this? Where are we headed? Perhaps uh, Anwar Ibrahim is uh, uh, responsible for partly creating these kinds of anxieties and uh, emotions. Because all this while, as, a, as an opposition leader, he has been going after the problems of the country over and over and over again. And uh, a lot of his supporters have been so used to trying to find fault with the previous governments over a period of 25 years, roughly. And so, as a result, just because their man is uh, the prime minister doesn't mean that they have stopped looking for problems. But there are also people who don't support Anwar who are also pressing the point. I guess uh, we should have to accept that lots of people are perhaps not that happy. And uh, we would have to see how Anwar can deal with this matter. Butik, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Okay, you're welcome. 
You've been hearing from Kubutik, who is the author of Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power. We will continue our conversation after this uh, about the Prime Minister. We are asking you, actually, it's quite a specific question. We're getting a lot of answers already. What do you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader? You can call us, double seven double three two nine hundred. send a voice note or WhatsApp, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Bruce Freddie Morrissey, BFM 89.9. It is 7.08 and this is Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod and we are kind of closing off a conversation that began when we spoke to the author of a recent book about Anwar Ibrahim's ideas and career. More so ideas and career than a biography, really. Um, so earlier, our guest, in case you missed it, was Emeritus Professor Kubutik. The book in question is called Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power. So we've been asking you, really, in, in line with this conversation, whether we wanted to know what you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader. How do you perceive him? That number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Let's start things off with a voice note that came in. This is from Saiful. I've been following Anwar Ibrahim politics since he's starting in, uh, I think, way back before while he was still in power with uh, one of the earliest minister. And I've been following this period. I was hopeful before the year, before it fell down, for the next Prime Minister. And 1998 happened. And 1998 happened. And after that, I've been together with uh, his party, PKR, for a long time until 2018. In my humble opinion, Anwar Ibrahim is a very intelligent person with a very good heart. And on top of that, a very strong will. And this is the character that we need in the, in the leader. Sometimes we have to make a decision that's not unpopular with others for the sake of the country. And Anwar Ibrahim managed to juggle it in such a way that is a peace to the majority of the uh, Malaysian. The only thing is right now, we have as a pop, he's not being a populist. He's being a politician, a prime minister, of, prime minister of Malaysia, and that is the character that we need. Because populist is just what we say doesn't really have a good impact in the country itself. Because for us, Malaysia, we need a good leader. My real worry right now is the succession, because he's already 77. I'm not going to look at Anwar Ibrahim to be a prime minister for uh, more up to 90s no it won't be happening like that because we need the next leader and for me pkr need to really hide up or need to go over the hurdles to get the next next uh, the next line of politician that can success can succeed ano ibrahim because ano ibrahim is too large of shoe to fill up and so far i don't see another candidate that can replace him. And for, I really hope for the next couple of years that all parties under Pakatan Harapan will buckle up and try to make the best for Malaysia. And PRU16 will be a very, very interesting uh, election to come. Saiful, thank you for that. So um, I think 
top marks, it would sound like, uh, for the Prime Minister, concerns in a larger sense about the party, more so than the men. Yeah, I think, Saful, you make a very excellent point about succession, something that's not talked about, uh, partly because Anwar has just come uh, into office, you know, after years of struggle uh, outside the, the, the kind of, the you know, the corridors of power. But I think the the question, uh, as you put it, is rightly with his party, his party needs to, not that it's guaranteed that his party is going to be in a lead, leading position in the next election. Whatever it may be, the question for Anwar himself will have to be succession country countries like Singapore, uh, perhaps because you know, the, the People's Action Party, they controls things so much that uh, they can start talking about succession, you know, almost like in terms of generations. Uh, we don't quite have that here. But I, I take your point, uh, you know, that is something that's necessary. If, it's, if we're looking to, to um, build a generation of politicians who are, as you put it, not populist, but those who think for the country. I, I think this populist thing is interesting because around the world, we've been seeing this increasing lean towards populism, right? And and it makes sense. I mean, if you think about people who are populist Generally, they are the ones who are perceived as speaking most directly. They make popular statements. They um, people please, even if it doesn't sound like they're people pleasing. These are all qualities that lend themselves well towards becoming popular. Um, I think it's interesting, um, Saiful, that you specifically say, I don't think he's being a populist because you could argue that he came in at a point where it would have been easy to expect him to be or people almost wanted that. You know, even if they didn't want it from Anwar himself because they wanted a reform and so on. Um, you could argue that, and I, I get the sense, that people really wanted a prime minister who would feel popular uh, or feel caring. I think there's a reason why the previous prime ministers leaned so heavily on this, uh, short-lived prime ministers, why, why they leaned so heavily on this idea of we are providing, we are caring, we are um, careful about you, you know, we watch what you want. And I think that people still expected some of that and maybe aren't seeing what they think is enough of it. Yeah, so I mean, you either lean uh, towards the kind of um, paternalistic model, you know, I am your father, like which people uh, seem to like. I yeah, mean, so, to, up to a point. Yeah, they do. And, you know, and you can see why people want security in a time of crisis. You retreat to figures that are secure, right? Anwar's not playing that game, it seems to me. But you're, you're very right. I mean, in the sense that um, uh, there will be a need for Anwar to uh, think about the long term in a world where uh, it's the electoral cycle that determines. And in Malaysia, we've seen not even within the electoral, not even an electoral cycle, where now, in fact, His Majesty, uh, you know, who's departing, uh, is, it was, is one of his last messages is keep this government. And I think he sees the detrimental effect of not even having a government that lasts a single term. Um, Bolo says, I would be surprised if there's negative feedback on PMX on this channel, echo chamber and all that. And I think this is interesting because um, Bolo, today actually people are being, uh, I would say, broadly balanced. But um, in the past, actually, we've done several shows where people have been really, really critical. And, and I think that that has not so much to do with, you're right in pointing out perhaps that broadly, you know, listeners to BFM might lean in a specific direction or, or at least um, a fair majority might. But I think it actually speaks to how difficult the times are right now that 
we've actually had heard a fair amount of criticism, maybe not today specifically, but in general. Yeah, and I, th- I, I would make a distinction, Bolo, between negativity and criticality. We want constantly to be critical. And I think our role as media is, in fact, to provide mm. a forum for criticality, which means also dealing with things in this, with a sense of proportion, uh, dealing with things in terms of their context and giving a context that either might, you know, be one year, might be 10 or 15 or, or 50 years, right? The, the, the point is, I don't think anybody wants the... Um, a, wants to dampen down on criticality. We certainly, But negativity, I don't think, is very productive. Well, uh, just for a, a hint of balance, Mansat says, Anwar is NATO. And um, I'm, I'm assuming that we're not talking about the North Atlantic yeah. <laughs> Treaty, um, but instead, no action, talk only. Yeah, so Mansat, I think, okay, so this is the kind of polemic that people engage with. But I would say to you, look at what's happening over the, the question of pensions today. The Prime Minister is asking for a very difficult choice to be made. He's asking for the ethical responsibilities, demanding that ministers choose one pension. In fact, everybody, don't double dip, don't triple dip on your pensions because it's unsustainable for government finances down the road, right? He could do the popular thing and not even broach this idea, but Mm. he has. And so I think when you talk about or accuse the Prime Minister of not, uh, uh, of only talking and not acting, I think that's not particularly fair. I also wonder how much of that has to do with how long anything takes to get done and that therefore you continuously talk about something even as the action is happening. It's just that the action is a one-time announcement, but the, the talking about it or trying to get people on board, that's ongoing, hence the perception of lots of talk. Um, all right, let's look at... Okay, so that was, I would say, mildly negative. Let's look at the very positive. Um, Fish says, he's got the guts to investigate corruption among past leaders. Many of them will have sleepless nights. This is the best reform to date since independence. Zul says, I believe he's the best PM for Malaysia now. Uh, Let's not talk about the others. Aaron says he's the only leader who has taken on unpopular steps to lift the country up. A rare commodity. Uh, He needs to build strong up-and-coming leaders. Christopher is very much in line with that. Uh, Also using words, superlatives. I say best PM. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, to all of you, you know, the the question will be, is it still too early to judge? Yeah, so that's what I was going to say, that I understand um, this reaction as well, particularly perhaps, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not speaking for everybody, but particularly for longtime supporters, that there might be this propensity to say, well, finally, and, you know, this is the best, this is very good. But one year and two months into uh, hopefully, you know, some stability, a five-year term, it's not very long. It's it's one-fifth. Yeah, and in fact, you know, I think we have a tendency as a country, and I, you know, uh, I look at myself when saying this, right? Do, do we 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 cheer on the successes, and then we get so disappointed by failures or reversals or disappointments. And so, I know, I think in the last year, I don't know, it's only been a year or so, right, since November uh, 2022, is that he's had both. You know, uh, when there was the DNA for you know Zaid Hamidi, there were people were crestfallen. I mean, people who his staunch supporters were crestfallen, right? Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the I mean, just the pressure to hold this government together in order to do all the other wonderful things that you want the government to do. So what are the balance? What are the trade-offs he's ha- he has to make? And I think history will judge him when we look back at this particular term. Keep those thoughts coming. We are asking you, um, what do you think? 
of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader. Um, he's really the subject of today's show, the main focus of it. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Building Fit Malaysians, BFM 89.9. It is 7.20. You're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. We are talking today about the Prime Minister. Um, so earlier we spoke to somebody, uh, the author of Anwar Ibrahim, Tenacious in Descent, Hopeful in Power. That's Kubutik. And we talked about the book. We talked about ideas, ideology, politics, career. But now we're asking you a very specific question. What do you think of Anwar Ibrahim as a leader? Uh, you can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Let's see. Um, oh, Kamarun says, Anwar is not a populist now, but he was playing that card during elections. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, all politicians have to play... Well, I mean, you're trying to get votes, right? So uh, being popular is not the problem. The, the idea, I think, and criticism around populism is that it's, it's short-termism, it's maybe a lack of coherence and the delivery of different types of objectives, all the things. So is Anwar a populist? I have no doubt there are elements of that. Uh, the question is whether now that he has uh, control of the government, whether he can take unpopular dis um, decisions that benefit the country in the long term. Um, we have Fadzli who says, I'm from a family of staunch Mahavirists, so I am at best ambivalent towards PMX. Personally, I feel he is a little too fond of theatrical politics, declaration of support from opposition parties, I have the numbers, etc. Policy-wise, I understand that he inherited a huge mess that can't be fixed in a year, so only time will tell. On the ground, though, certain demographics feel that his leadership is hypocritical with regard to the DNAA, the renewal of toll concessionaires despite slamming it for decades, and they feel besieged. The second, uh, the second part of that is not my opinion, it's just what I've heard. Yeah, so, you know, the, will any prime minister in a democratic country be able to deliver 100% of their promises? Uh, are, the question also will be, when can you deliver on a promise, right? Can you deliver it now? Does it all have to be now? Uh, or does it have to be rolled out when you gather enough strength? And I think, you know, we, we, there was a lot of questions in 2018 about the loyalty of the civil service and whether they would play along. And that's something that, uh, you know, uh, any prime minister getting to power with policy initiatives will have to contend with. Well, I'm interested in that point about uh, theatrical politics because I think it speaks to the issue we were talking about earlier with charisma and the different ways in which politicians access that charisma, stay charismatic, how it is that they push that. And so I, I think, you know, um, it's interesting to hear the, the exact ways in which one person's flair, uh, perhaps we can say, for either theatrics or charismatic behaviour, call it what you will, can be read by people who are, um, well, as Vatsli puts it, at best ambivalent. OSK says, classic urban bubble comments coming in. Life is very, very hard for the B40 now with unfeasibly high food prices, limp economic opportunities, institutional corruption, uh, police, customs, immigration that's not been addressed. The only thing is we have no alternative. Yeah, the new alternative thing becomes such a burden, doesn't it, OSK? I mean, in the sense that uh, we feel that, well, what do we do, right? Who else is going to take over, could do a better job? I don't know. Which is also a point that TIDJ is raising. Let me be the voice of dissent today then. So uh, I'm just going to 
related to the American presidential election this year and how many people do not know who to choose between Biden and Trump, uh, mainly because they say it is between two horrible choices. We were left with a choice of voting Anwar in or putting Perikatan National and the likelihood of Mohidin being the you know, puppet of Hadi Awang or the, the likes of PAS. So Anwar was not the best choice. Anwar is, in my opinion, not even the best politician to lead the country at the moment, but he is the lesser evil of the two and the people have to just choose him. We had no choice. TIDJ, thank you for that. Um, you know, it's interesting because I... I, I I think a lot of your points we've spoken about earlier, but that thing about American politics and how now specifically people are um, pushing back against the notion of not having a choice and saying that not having a choice is not good enough. It's interesting because I wonder at what point we'll hit that here as well or if it's coming. Yeah, so the unfortunate thing that you see in a lot of advanced democracies is, in fact, people stop voting. I yes, mean, yes. Like yeah. Less than half the American population even votes. Uh, well, will this happen in Malaysia? I don't think so. I think Malaysians are still committed to the electoral process. And yes, uh, I mean, democracy... At least at the federal level. Yeah. I mean, you know, the question is, at the end of the day, he might be the lesser evil of the choices we've had. But isn't that democracy in some sense? I mean, you know, aren't all politicians, don't they, even if they present uh, so themselves to aggregate demand? Doesn't that go back then to the point about when you think that somebody is higher minded? So I think this is what we were trying to get at earlier, right, with the, the, the positioning of an intellectual prime minister. Because when you have somebody who has positioned himself for a while now as as high-minded, as interested in, in specific philosophies and reforms, then the disappointments, I think, feel deeper because then anything is seen as less than. Um, and, and in some ways, um, realism or pragmatism is not, is not viewed in the same light as... It's, it's not viewed in the same light. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I mean, I think uh, you set yourself up for problems when you are high-minded. But, you know... But real politics demands those choices be made. We also have this from Itam, who says, Anwar may make the right decisions, but he needs to modernise our public make public-making process as Malaysia gets pluralised and now that we have hung parliament and coalition governments. Take pension reform, for example. He should provide a green paper guiding public opinion towards some acceptable package deal, which includes reform on elected representatives' pension. By imposing the decision and then supplementing it with moral persuasion with YBs, he's exposing his government to revolt from civil servants. Yeah, so this is very difficult, right? So in some ways, this particular, I think, problem is something to watch. How is Anwar going to persuade the civil servant, right, to any or any stakeholder groups to give up their uh, privileges, to some extent, for the greater good? Um, if there's any time that we needed uh, a charismatic uh, prime minister, I think it's now more than ever. By the way, Siemens says, does charisma equal competence? I'm having doubts. Uh, so I think, Siemens, this is interesting because it speaks to the the dichotomies that we like to put in place. So like charisma cannot be competent, intellectual cannot be man of the people. There, there are these things, and I'm not speaking to Anwar actually, I'm just saying in general that we have these very specific 
hang-ups when it comes to politicians, I think, that they have to be one or the other. Because I don't know that you have to be either, right? You you kind of, in the position of um, a minister in particular, you maybe need a bit of both. Of course, I, I think you absolutely, the whole, the whole, I think the work of politicians is to persuade. Yes, Because yes. there are all kinds of stakeholders out there. And if you, and so the question is, what's your model of social change? I think the technocratic argument here gets played, right? That you don't need the, the charisma is not as important as the know-how. Um, but I don't know that that's necessarily true, especially not in our setting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, earlier, uh, you know, Lynn, we were talking about the Philippines, right? And what they call democratic of, uh, and, yes. and uh, democratic ambivalence. I don't know if Malaysians are like this. We, we, we are de- Democrats in one level, especially in the elections. And then when we have our, our prime minister in power, we want them to act like an authoritarian strongman and push through everything without regard to all the stakeholders. That, and when, right? And then when the, stake, when, when the prime minister speaks and slows things down in order to bring everybody along, we blame the prime minister. So this might be a topic for another day. That, that feels like it's a setup for uh, another talk back, perhaps next week. But thank you, everybody, for getting in touch. Uh, you have been listening to Inside Story, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.